Welcome to Double Deal, a series about organized crime in 20th century Boston. The stories of our central character, Richard Tchaikovsky. The criminals, the crimes, and the law enforcement officers who ruled the streets. Nina and I will be your guides through the darkest streets of Boston, telling you the true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies. Hi all. Today Nina and I are going to be discussing the Bennett brothers, Walter, William, and Edward, who was best known as Wimpy. Wimpy was the most infamous of the trio, maybe more memorable because of his nickname than his actions, but nonetheless a duplicitous and complicated character that any actor would be proud to claim as their own creation. The mystery of what happened to Wimpy and Walter still haunts the Bennett family to this day. All of the usual suspects were and are linked to their murders. FBI Special Agent H. Paul Rico, Stevie Flemmy, Frankie Salemi, and so on. Stevie later testified that Frankie wanted Wimpy killed, but that he himself shot Wimpy. Other FBI informants claimed that Wimpy was killed because of Larry Bayoni. That makes absolutely zero sense. And let's not forget that Larry Bayoni and Phil Wagenheim supposedly also beat up Stevie Flemmy. Well, who didn't beat up Stevie Flemmy? <laughs> Everyone and their mother had at some point in time. The man had a face that said, punch me. <laughs> the beating is another possible reason why Stevie hated Larry and the LCN guys, but Frankie's story of being teamed up with Larry still doesn't make sense. Then there's the story that Wimpy was skimming from Stevie and that Peter Poulos told Stevie about it after Stevie accused Peter of skimming. And before you say anything, no, that doesn't make any sense either. Read the 302s. No one was going to trust Wimpy Bennett to be their bookkeeper. Can you imagine? The man's nickname was The Great Deceiver. Also, according to BPD Sergeant Walsh's testimony, the bullets that killed William Bennett matched those that killed Peter Poulos. We'll get more into Poulos's murder a little later in this episode and at the end of the season. Frankie would later blame Stevie's becoming an informant on his relationship with Wimpy. That may have made it easier for him, but his brother Jimmy's foray into top echelon informant land made more likely have helped Stevie become a CI himself. Indulge me in one of my tirades for a minute. I know that people ask why confess to something you didn't do, but look at the bullshit story that Frankie told the congressional committee about being dressed as a rabbi along with Stevie. That fucking story has more lives than a bag full of cats. And it was quite elaborate right down to supposedly Earl Smith luring punch to the Beth Israel Hospital parking lot. Earl Smith, who is neither Irish nor Italian, but a Russian Jew. <laughs> but maybe that's where Frankie got the idea about the rabbi costume. Oh my God, Earl looked just like Boris Nayfield. You remember Boris? He came over in the 70s and the whole Jackson Varnick thing all tatted up in full vor style. <laughs> Tax fraud Boris. Uh-huh. <laughs> Back to Frankie's rabbi shtick. How many authors, journos, former law enforcement officers, congressmen, and ordinary folk have bought that story and regurgitated it like they'd been there watching it unfold? I know. It's like beating a dead horse into the ground. I keep ranting about it. But read the police reports. Read the news articles from when that shooting happened. Punchy was in front of the Beaconsfield Hotel on Beacon Street in Washington Square in Brookline when he was shot. That's roughly two and a half miles from the Beth Israel Hospital. Punchy was transferred there by ambulance, not lured there by Earl Smith. 
Howie Winter had an entirely different version of events, which at least had the location and events spot on. The point is that these men were and are liars. They copped to crimes that weren't theirs either to build their street cred or to cut themselves a better deal with the feds. And with all those supposedly involved, you would expect someone to know where the bodies of Walter and Wimpy are buried. But instead, Stevie sent the feds on a wild goose chase and the Bennett family had their hopes dashed once again. In June of 2018, Stevie Fleming took the stand to testify against Frankie Salemi. The prosecutor asked Fleming to point out Salemi in the courtroom. Guess what? He couldn't. Do you buy that? <laughs> Actually, I do. Look, if it wasn't for the feds, and I don't mean just Rico and Condon, but all the way up to Hoover back in the day since they were all aware of what a bunch of fucking degenerate serial killers they were supporting, these guys would have been nothing. The only reason Stevie and company came out on top is because they had the full support of the FBI. And when they lost that support, what did they do? They turned on each other and it fell apart. Winter Hill was a Fed project going back to Buddy McLean. The only reason the McLaughlins got wiped out was because they wouldn't cooperate. They weren't informants or collaborators, and that was their undoing. Buddy McLean, informant. Howie Winter, informant. Stevie Fleming, informant. I know people like to say Whitey wasn't technically an informant because he never testified against anyone in court and that he wasn't aware that the feds assigned him a number and all that other bullshit. I don't agree. I think Whitey had a number going back to 65 when he came home from Alcatraz. You're not going to get an argument from me. I swear, telling people that these guys were all cut from the same cloth is like telling a kid that Santa Claus isn't real. They know it, but they want to hang on to the fantasy that they were all stand-up guys or something. Okay, enough of my ranting. We'll get back to the testimony of Stevie Flemmy towards the end of this episode. Well, I bet most of our listeners don't know where the story that Frankie Salemi murdered Walter Bennett came from. Decades later, in the 1980s, Larry Bayoni claimed that Walter Bennett had hired Frankie to take out Larry, but while they were waiting for Larry to appear, Frankie shot and killed Walter instead. Another story that makes no sense, but that's what Larry told Jerry and Julo on the infamous wiretaps in the 1980s. Is that the cardboard box in the back of the beach wagon story? Yes! God, they were like gossiping old biddies. Who, us? No, the wise guys. Okay, let's briefly talk about the early lives of the Bennett brothers, their activities, and how the three men found themselves murder victims within a year of each other. William Frederick Jr. was born on May 29, 1911, Walter Earl on August 17, 1912, and Edward Albert Wimpy on January 1, 1919 in Boston to William Frederick Sr. and Flora Caroline Seymour. Often the Bennets were described as Irish gangsters, which isn't quite accurate. Well, not the gangster part, the Irish part. They were roughly a quarter Irish from the Bennett line. Our Bennett cousins were descendants of William Brewster. Pilgrims. They were also loyalists, which is how part of the family ended up in Canada for a few generations. We won't hold that against them. Well, I was more implying that they were government collaborators <laughs> for generations. Well, their co cooperation came naturally to them. There doesn't seem to be anything so out of the ordinary about their childhood. The only odd thing is that 11-year-old Wimpy was nowhere to be found in the 1930 census. Well, it was hard enough finding the census, and part of the family got counted twice. And I know you just found it, but no sign of Wimpy. Maybe he was in juvie, but there's no mention of him having a juvenile record on his rap sheet. Well, moving on, both Walter and Wimpy enlisted in the Army at the beginning of World War II. One of our listeners, who is a grandnephew of the Bennetts, sent us a photograph of a postcard from Walter from 1943. 
Thank goodness for our listeners sharing with us. Thank you. Wimpy enlisted in the Army on December 17, 1941, and served as a private in the Air Corps, as did Walter. On July 29, 1942, Wimpy married Francis Waresco in Michigan. Before the end of his time in the service, Wimpy was awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. Nino, Nino, Nina <laughs> was the first to find themselves in trouble with the law. Sorry. Uh, we're not in Tbilisi anymore. Anyway, it was Walter, the boy bootlegger. That was the headline. In August of 1931, he and Joseph Lewis were arrested in a basement at 335 Shamut Ave for selling alcohol. Walter was just 17 at the time. His father had passed away the previous summer. In 1949, Wimpy, along with three other local guys, found himself in jail in Maine after fleeing from the scene of a robbery they had committed at Steuben's restaurant in Boston. But a rural jail wasn't going to hold Wimpy. He cut in a hole in the roof and off he went. In 1952, Wimpy was held on contempt charges after refusing to cooperate with prosecutors in the Brinks investigation. That investigation would last for half a decade and spawn many other investigations, including one into illegal lottery operations in and around the Boston area. In 1954, Walter Bennett was accused of funding one such operation along with Anthony Pino and Vincent Costa of Brinks heist fame. Forced to take the stand in front of the Massachusetts Crime Commission, Walter refused to state his present occupation, but admitted that he had been running what he called a little dice game in Attleboro in 1949. He also accused the commission of asking silly questions. I like this quote. I just went to school for seven years and can't match wits with college graduates, he added. Oh, that was one of dad's favorite lines. He'd say, I only went to the fourth grade. You're going to have to break that down for me. (laughs) He got it from Walter. (laughs) Exactly. The Brinks heist would continue to haunt Wimpy Bennett for years. If you want to hear more about that case, listen to episode seven. Wimpy and Fats Buccelli were sentenced to one year in Deer Island for possession of part of the Brinks loot. But in May of 57, Fats and Wimpy were cleared of being accessories after the fact. Buccelli was killed in June 19, 1958. Besides their criminal activities, Walter had his lounge. Wimpy had his variety of businesses ranging from a smoke shop, construction, and smut peddling. William kept a lower profile. Well, does Wimpy's boosting count as a profession? <laughs> More like a hobby, or in his case, a condition, since he appeared to be a klepto. Another crazy Wimpy story. In January of 1960, a man named Charles Kirby received a phone call at his TV repair shop by a man looking for Wimpy. The headline read that there was a tip that a hit had been ordered on Wimpy. Well, as if there was a shortage of people who loathed Wimpy and wanted him dead. Two years after Wimpy went missing, the Boston Globe ran an article describing Wimpy's Machiavellian behavior and blaming him for having a role in at least 50 of the gangland murders of the 1960s, saying that he manipulated people and instigated the hits in an effort to clear out the competition. This was essentially a rehash of the Jerome Sullivan article from 1965 that we mentioned in the hit parade of 1965. Like you said, no shortage of people that loathed Wimpy. It's also worth noting that the Bennett's were paying off at least one cop, but likely more. Wimpy had a particularly close relationship with Detective Billy Stewart of the BPD and was regularly informing to him. We've covered a lot of Wimpy's activities in other episodes, so we won't go into all of it again. We'll link to them in the show notes. And Walter also loved running his mouth to the authorities. He received frequent visits from the postal inspectors throughout the five-year investigation of the Plymouth mail robbery. 
1963, the Postals concluded that while Walter Bennett had not been that helpful, he was a valuable pipeline and further contact should be maintained to nurture his cooperation. Yeah, well, three years later, Walter was still talking to the Postals. <laughs> Quote, as usual, he was congenial and cooperative. His first remark was, well, what do you want to know about Diaferio? Referring to Sonny. Walter was still convinced that Punchy McLaughlin was involved in the mail robbery. He told the agents that until Punchy was murdered, he had been, quote, shaking down Sonny regularly. Not that he had something on him, but just putting fear into Sonny that something would happen to him, unquote. Walter continued on that Sonny was getting a lot of people in the middle with his stories of where his wealth came from, such as gambling and borrowing from Shylocks, and admitted to lending Sonny a couple of thousand dollars himself. Walter ended his statement, quote, you guys are on the right track, unquote. In October of 1966, Citrus Baron Charles Von Maxey was attacked in the bedroom of his Florida home. An intruder threw a sheet over his head, stabbed him four times, shot him once in the head, and then fled from the 324-acre estate. There were no fingerprints or weapons found at the scene, but a couple of months later, Von Maxey's widow Irene came forward to say that her lover, Johnny Sweet, arranged for the murder of her husband. Sweet was an associate of Walter Bennett's and a frequent visitor of Walter's Lounge on Dudley Street near Upham's Corner in Dorchester. Irene was given immunity when she testified in 1967 against Sweet, who she claimed convinced her that if they murdered her husband, they would share his fortune of $2 million. Sweet's first trial ended in a hung jury. He was convicted in a second trial and sentenced to life. An appeals court judge later overturned the conviction on a technicality. By then, the state star witness, Irene, had been prosecuted for perjury. Florida law won't let a person convicted of perjury testify at a criminal trial, so Sweet was freed. A man named William Kelly did not come into the picture until 1984 when Sweet made a plea bargain deal to testify against Kelly for being one of his hitmen. Sweet claimed he paid $30,000 to William Kelly and Andrew Von Etter to murder Maxie. Conveniently, Von Etter of Mattapan had been found shot and beaten to death in the trunk of his car in Medford on February 1st, 1967. You left out that Von Etter was supposedly a noble of German descent born in Lithuania who somehow found himself wrapped up with the Bennets and Earl Smith. He was out on bail at the time of his murder after being indicted with Earl back in November of 66. Back to the Von Maxey case. Poor Kelly was convicted in 1984 and placed on death row, all the while maintaining his innocence. In 2002, the son of Stephen Busius, a cousin of Billy Aggie, came forward during Kelly's appeal to say that he believed his late father was responsible for the murder of Von Maxey. Kelly is still on death row. Ugh. Stuff is so awful. I know. Back to the Bennetts and their murders. Wimpy was looking for Detective Billy Stewart on the 18th of January, 1967, but Stewart didn't have time to meet him. The following day, Wimpy met with a friend at 10 a.m. and was supposed to sign a company payroll after that, but never showed up. The friend was supposedly Jack Kelly. On January 28th, the Boston Globe ran an article about Wimpy's disappearance, but his son didn't report him officially missing until March. On August 4th, Wimpy's car was found after three boys were arrested while breaking into a grocery store in Alston. One of the boys said his boss, named Steve, gave him permission to use the car, but nothing ever came of the case. But was Steve supposed to be Stevie Flemmy? That's what I assumed, but I don't know. On April 10th, Walter's wife, Barbara, reported him missing to the police. She had last seen him at 10.30 p.m. the previous Tuesday. 
Four days later, informant number BS922-C stated that Stevie Flemmy and Frankie Salemi had taken out Walter and Wimpy Bennett. The informant added that they did this to pacify the LCN since there could be no peace with Wimpy feuding with Larry Bione. The informant stated that Flemmy and Salemi were really moving and are going to be big in the organization. Which organization? The FBI? <laughs> he didn't specify. Salemi's version of events was that Walter blamed Stevie and the LCN for Wimpy's murder and was out for revenge. They lured Walter to Frankie's garage on the premise that Frankie would help him take Stevie out. But instead, Stevie was waiting for Walter and killed him there as he was walking up the stairs. Stevie then disposed of Walter's body. Walter's car was eventually found in a parking lot at Logan Airport. Walter left behind an estate of roughly $150,000. On December 23rd, the final Bennett brother, William, was murdered. His crumpled body was found in a snowbank on Harvard Street near Blue Hill Ave with a bullet through his brain. Just like in the death of Walter Bennett, Salemi claimed that William Bennett was looking for revenge for his brothers. Hugh Shields and Dickie Grasso went to C.V. Fleming and they concocted a plan to take out Billy Bennett. Supposedly their plan was to kill him and then dump the body with Walter and Wimpy in Hopkinton. Stevie and Frankie allegedly were to follow in a second car to pick up the body, but since Stevie Flemmy was involved, the whole thing went terribly wrong. <laughs> Billy was shot four times in the chest. The force of the impact caused the car door to open, and Billy's dead body fell out of the car and into the middle of the street in Dorchester. A taxi driver who was passing found Billy Bennett, and the assailants couldn't retrieve the body. Poor Dickie Grasso's abandoned Buick sedan was found in Brookline a week later. The cops found Dickie's corpse face up in the trunk after they towed it to the police garage. You know Dickie wasn't packing a full deck. Well, no question about that. As we've recounted in numerous episodes already, the following month, Flemmy allegedly planted a car bomb in attorney John Fitzgerald's car. Stevie Flemmy allegedly told Rico about his involvement in Wimpy Bennett's murder. Rico subsequently filed a false report stating that Flemmy told him that others were responsible for the murder, as usual. Just a few days after Billy Bennett was murdered, Rico went to his home looking for documents pertaining to the activities of Wimpy and Walter, but not for the FBI, but rather to assist Stevie Flemmy. William Bennett's family would later sue the feds, alleging that, quote, Rico assisted and participated in the death of William Bennett in order to strengthen Flemmy's position in his criminal operations, thus assuring the continuing flow of information regarding the LCN to the FBI by way of Flemmy's underworld connections, unquote. Rico was unsuccessful, but CV took over the Bennett's illegal enterprises anyway. In September of 69, Frankie Salemi supposedly received an early morning call from Stevie Flemmy. Frankie picked up Stevie and they drove to Revere Beach to meet Special Agent Rico, who had another FBI agent with him. The second agent stood to the side and wasn't involved in the conversation that the other three men were having. Frankie's description of the second fed could only be Gerard Coleman, dad's handler and Rico's partner at that time. Rico warned Stevie and Frankie that there were indictments coming down for the murder of Billy Bennett. He told them to get out of town, and they obeyed. The men took Peter Poulos with them, but according to Frankie's version of events, he left them in California and went back east to New York City and wasn't present when Stevie murdered Peter Poulos in the Nevada desert. The indictments came down on September 11th. Five men were named, Hugh Shields, Frank Salemi, Stevie Flemmy, Peter Poulos, and Robert, I'm going to 
fudge this, Dadieko. Something like Hugh that. Hugh Shields had a record that dated back to the time he was in juvie. In 1953, he escaped with two other boys from Shirley. They stole a car and made their way to Albany, New York, where they led the state police in a high-speed chase. After the cops shot at their car three times, they abandoned the car and took off on foot. They tried to hide in a basement of a local house, but were cornered and sent back to Shirley. Three years later, Hugh was charged with arson in the 1955 Deer Island prison riot and sentenced to two years in East Cambridge jail. Just like in the other trials of the 1950s and 60s in Boston, the feds relied on a single witness to make their case for them. This time, their trump card was Robert <clears throat> Didieco, and forgive me if I don't say that name correctly, D-A-D-D-I-E-C-O, for anyone who's wondering. Robert was a small-time hoodlum who had, just been, who had been arrested in June of 1969 after he and three accomplices from Canada tried to rob a bank in Somerville. They pistol-whipped the guard and forced the bank manager and customers to the floor, but then the police arrived on the scene and the four men were forced to surrender at gunpoint. A fifth accomplice shot another cop and fled the scene. A couple of weeks later, Robert was indicted on charges of armed robbery while masked and assault with intent to commit murder. While Robert was sitting in Walpole awaiting trial, Special Agent Rico pressured him into becoming the star witness in the Billy Bennett murder case. Robert was given a confidential informant number and made a top echelon informant in August. He eventually joined Joe Barboza and Vinnie Teresa in the newly created witness protection program. Well, the criminals weren't the only ones in trouble. Detective Billy Stewart was indicted in February of 1970 for being an accessory after the fact in Billy Bennett's murder. That same day, he was relieved of his duty as a cop. He had been with the BPD for 19 years. He pleaded innocent to the charges two days later, and a trial date was set for April 7th. One of the charges against Billy Stewart was that he had participated in moving the car that had Dickie Grasso's body in it from Dorchester to Brookline. At Stewart's trial, an alleged associate of the Bennetts testified that they were paying Billy Stewart $50 a week, but the dates he gave were after both Walter and Wimpy had already disappeared. There was also a monthly payment envelope that had the initials BM on it, but who BM was was never uh, revealed. At the trial of Hugh Shields in April 1970, Daddy Echo testified that there were six men involved in the plot to kill Billy Bennett, Dickie Grasso, and the five men who had been indicted back in September of 69. Robert claimed that Dickie Grasso was Billy Bennett's bodyguard and therefore was the only man who could get close to him. Hugh Shields was the trigger man, but Billy saw the gun and tried to escape from the car, and that's why he fell out into the snowbank. Stevie, Flemmy, and Frankie were in a second car in order to retrieve Billy's dead body, but the passing cabbie put an end to that plan. In typical Flemmy fashion, Stevie called up Billy Stewart to save him, and as usual, Stewart came running. He drove them back to the murder scene and helped them move the car to Brookline with Grosso's body in it. A similar version of the story that we quoted earlier from Frankie. Oh, remember at Raymond Patriarca's trial in 1970 when Jack Kelly was testifying against Raymond? Raymond screamed, quote, ask him where Wimpy Bennett is. He was the last one to see him alive, end quote. Raymond was pissed, but Jack didn't bat an eyelash. In the meantime, back in Boston, Billy Stewart denied that he was involved in the murder and claimed that he had been shocked to hear that Billy Bennett had been murdered. He did concede, however, that the Bennetts had all been his informants, but he stated that he had never revealed his sources even to his bosses. Quote, even the FBI does not reveal the names of informers, unquote. Hugh Shields and Billy Stewart were acquitted on April 30th. Shields was sent back to Walpole on a parole violation charge, but Billy Stewart was free to go. 
In an interview with the press, he lambasted the prosecution and alleged that the investigation into Billy Bennett's murder had been sloppy because Daddy Echo had turned prosecution witness so quickly after the indictments. In 1974, Stevie Fleming returned to Boston and the Bennett murder charge, among others, was dropped just as the same charge against Frankie Salemi had earlier been dropped. The pair were indicted again in 1996. In October of 2001, former FBI Special Agent Dennis Condon testified, quote, It is also my understanding that Didieco positively refused to testify against Flemmy, supposedly because he disliked Salemi, that he did not have, he, th- forgive me, he had a dislike for Salemi that he did not have for Flemmy and refused to testify, end quote. Included in that document was the following statement. Quote, it is worth noting that law enforcement did not pressure Didieco to testify against Flemmy, and it appears that it was acceptable to law enforcement to allow the witness to testify against one defendant and refrain from testifying against another defendant based on personal friendship. If Flemmy had been prosecuted in 1969 for the Fitzgerald bombing or the William Bennett murder, his role as an FBI informant might have been disclosed and its legal implications might have been examined three decades ago. Flemmy's unsuccessful flight to avoid prosecution spared Rico and the FBI the risk of the embarrassment and controversy that disclosure of Flemmy's dual status as an FBI informant and alleged murderer had recently entailed. Rico had reason to be concerned about embarrassment to the FBI. By honoring his promise to protect Flemmy, Rico also promoted the possibility that Flemmy would in the future again become a valuable FBI informant, end quote. He was a cheerleader for C.V. Flemmy. I just... Yep. Yep. Anyway, in November of 2001, authorities were digging at a firing range in Hopkinton looking for the remains of Walter and Wimpy after Frankie Salemi told them the location, claiming he helped bury the Bennett brothers in hopes of shaving time off of his sentence. Oh, and don't forget, Vinnie Teresa claimed that they were dumped in lie on a construction site somewhere along Route 93. I mean, it's only 190 miles long, somewhere along. The Bennett family has yet to receive any closure. Decades back, former special agent and convicted felon John Connolly tried to convince one of the Bennett descendants that the Angelos had killed the three brothers, but they knew better. Fast forward to June of 2018. As we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, Stevie was on the stand and asked to ID Frankie in the courtroom, and he couldn't. Frankie leaned into his attorney and told him that Stevie was soft while motioning with his tongue in his cheek that he had had a stroke. Well, the Bennett family still has no answers. Stevie and Frankie are sitting in prison and either can't remember or don't know the answer. Were the feds involved in the disposal of their bodies or was someone else responsible for their demise? Was there some weight to Raymond Patriarch's accusation against Jack Kelly? We've alluded to this many times, but there were four missing persons cases in the 1960s. Billy Aggie, Tommy Richards, and the Bennett brothers. And what did they all have in common? Jack Kelly. But we'll probably never know the truth. Speaking of Jack, next week we're going to be talking about the botched heist of the late 1960s. Well, Jack never botched anything. (laughs) No, but the feds had a laundry list of names that included Jack and Dad that they were looking at for just about every armed robbery in those days. I'm telling you, they're still using that same list since some of the men we'll be looking at are current potential Gardner Museum heist suspects. James March... James Marks, Richard Magna, and a few others. Oh, it's great. Hope you join us again, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.
Double Deal, true stories of criminals, crimes, and lies.